Dr. Robert Benoit, Old Testament History, Lecture Number 14. Let's go on to Genesis 4 and 5. One on your sheet is, quote, the death of Abel, end quote. A couple of things to note about the death of Abel in Genesis 4. First, the first death is by murder. God had said, quote, as surely as you eat of the tree, you will die, end quote. And certainly that happens, and that was fulfilled. But we find that the first death, actual death, was not a natural one. It was murder. And not only murder, but it was the killing of a brother. That makes it even worse. What makes it even worse is that it was occasioned by hatred because Abel's offering was accepted by God and Cain's was not. Because of that, he kills his brother. So the first death is by murder in Genesis chapter 4 in these early verses there. The second thing under the death of Abel is the question of the offerings for sacrifices that were brought, the question of why God accepted Abel's and did not accept Cain's. I'm not sure that we can answer that fully, but you have the statement in verse 4, quote, Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and his offering he had no respect, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? End quote. Then verse 7, which is the difficult verse, says, quote, If you do well, shall you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and unto you shall be his desire, and you shall rule over him. End quote. I think verse 7 implies that attitude is the important thing in the bringing of the offering. Quote, if you do well, shall you not also be accepted? End quote. If you read in Hebrews 11, verse 4, this is the statement that's often related to this question. Why was one accepted and the other rejected? Quote, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. End quote. Now many are of the feeling that the critical thing that distinguished between the two offerings was not that Cain brought the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought an animal. It wasn't a difference in the kind of offering brought, but the difference was in the disposition of the heart, and it was by faith that Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. The other question that is often brought up here is, how much did Abel know about what specific kind of sacrifice was to be brought, or even that a sacrifice was to be brought? Prior to this, we have no information in the text that tells us that God gave any instruction in regard to the matter of sacrifice. You remember in the last class we said in Genesis 3.21, when the coats were made of skin, that some feel that at that point the institution of the sacrifice was made, and that there was some instruction given in connection with that. If that's the case, it's not said in the text. So that becomes speculative. There may have been something in there, and there may not. 
If there was something there, then it's possible. Abel followed that instruction, and Cain did not. But you see that that whole construction is fairly speculative. In a discussion by B.B. Warfield, which is on your bibliography, next to the last entry on page 9, an article entitled, quote, Christ, Our Sacrifice, end quote. It's contained in this volume of essays called, quote, Biblical Foundations, end quote, pages 167 to 169. That's not the entire article, but where he discusses this particular text as an interesting discussion of the offering of Cain and Abel. Let me just read a paragraph or so here. In his comments on what was going on here in Genesis 4, he says, quote, It can scarcely be reading too much between the lines to suppose that the narrative in the fourth chapter of Genesis is intended, on the one hand, to describe the origin of sacrificial worship, and, on the other, to distinguish between two conceptions of sacrifice, and to indicate the preference of Jehovah for the one rather than the other. These two conceptions are briefly those which have come to be known, respectively, as a piacular theory and the symbolical or gift theory. Piacular theory has to do with the idea of the necessity of atonement for sin by requiring expiation, whereas the gift theory or symbolical is pretty much as its name says, a gift that's given to God. But piacular has to do with the idea that there needs to be satisfaction on God's part of his justice, atonement for sin, end quote. And he says that there are probably two conceptions of sacrifice involved here. He says, quote, in this view, we are not to suppose that Cain and Abel simply brought each a gift to the Lord from the increase which had been granted him to acknowledge thereby the overlordship of Jehovah, and to express subjection and obedience to him. And that is merely an accident that Cain's offering, as that of a husbandman, was of the fruit of the ground, while Abel's, as that of a shepherd, was of the firstlings of the flock. There is no reason apparent why Jehovah should prefer a lamb to a sheaf of wheat. The difference surely goes deeper. For it is by faith that Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, which seems to suggest that the supreme excellence of his sacrifice is to be sought not in the mere nature of the thing offered, but in the attitude of the offerer. What seems to be implied is that Cain's offering was an act of mere homage. Abel's embodied a sense of sin. That's piacular, an act of contrition, a cry for succor, a plea for pardon, in a word. And here's the simple restatement of Warfield's position on this question. Quote, in a word, Cain came to the Lord with an offering in his hand, an homage theory of sacrifice in his mind. Abel, with an offering in his hand, and the piacular theory of sacrifice in his heart. And it was because of this that Jehovah had respect to Abel's offering and not to Cain's, end quote. Now his concluding statement is, quote, if so, while we may say that sacrifice was invented by man, 
we must also say that by this act, piacular sacrifice, was instituted by God. In other modes of conceiving it, sacrifice may represent the reaching out of man towards God. In its piacular conception, it represents the stooping down of God to man. The fundamental difference is that in the one case, sacrifice rests upon consciousness of sin and has its reference to the restoration of a guilty human being to the favor of a condemning God. In the other, it stands outside of all relation to sin and has its reference only to the expression of the proper attitude of deference that a creature should preserve towards his maker or ruler. Now that becomes a somewhat speculative counter-analysis for what you might say is going on here in Genesis 4. But I think you're left, because the text doesn't directly address the issue, to sort of wrestle with the problem in that way. I think Warfield has a rather insightful suggestion. They both come with sacrifices, but with different concepts, and God sanctions the one, but not the other. That's what Warfield is saying, a piacular view of the sanctions, which Warfield then would attribute to Abel's offering. Now, I think I would pretty much accept Warfield's analysis, but let me just give you the other side of it. I've mentioned before John Murray's notes on biblical theology several times. When he comes to this text, he says, quote, It would appear that the difference of attitude on the part of God was due not only because of the attitude of Cain, but also to the type of offering which he brought, end quote. And see, that's what Warfield says really doesn't make any difference. Warfield says it was the attitude that was the distinguishing feature. Murray says, all right, attitude is important, but also it is the type of offering. He says, quote, we have an intimation that God had revealed what was required as to worship. That is both as the very mold in which the attitude is expressed, end quote you're left with trying to decide why God accepted this and rejected the other. And I think we have to say that the text itself doesn't provide the answer. As it was probably the firstlings of the flock, whereas it doesn't say it was the firstlings of the fruit. Well, again, you could speculate on that. The text doesn't really answer it for us. What Murray would respond when it says, quote, by faith he brought a more excellent sacrifice, end quote. I have put the stress on the faith up to this point. What Murray does is put it on, quote, the more excellent sacrifice, end quote. What he says is, quote, by faith Abel brought a more excellent sacrifice, end quote, in the sense that it was one that conformed to the previous instructions. So it was a more excellent sacrifice in its own nature. He doesn't say that the attitude was unimportant, but he stresses the character of the offering itself. So admittedly, with Hebrews 11.4, you could, also depending on where you put the stress, fit it with either of the views. In short, what Murray says is, it would appear that the difference of attitude on the part of God was due not only because of the attitude of Cain, but also to the type of offering. So it was attitude and type of offering. And he says in Hebrews 11.4, 
by faith he brought a more excellent sacrifice, end quote, and understands, quote, more excellent, end quote, to be the kind of offering. It's in his unpublished lecture notes, quote, if you will do well, end quote, in other words, if you come in the proper way, if you come with the proper attitude, or if you come with the proper sacrifice, I think you could read it either way. Won't you be accepted? But to go on with verse 7, and to continue our discussion, Cain is told, quote, If you do well, won't you be accepted? And if you do not well, sin lies at the door, end quote. Now the term in Hebrew there, quote, sin, end quote, can be read either, quote, sin, end quote, or, quote, sin offering, end quote. It's the same word. Normally it's been taken as, quote, sin lies at the door, end quote. The expression, quote, to lie at the door, end quote, is an expression that sort of illustrates an animal crouching, ready to spring. So it seems that this is the normal way of understanding the text. Sin is crouching at the door as an animal ready to spring and to devour, to master, and to control. If you don't do well, that's what's going to happen. Sin is going to control you. And then that last statement we looked at in the last class hour, quote, unto you shall be his desire, end quote. That is sin. Sin's desire is to master and control you, but you must rule over it. That's your obligation. Now, if you take it in the sense of, quote, sin offering, end quote, you will read, quote, if you do well, shall you not be accepted? And if you do not well, there's an offering, there's a slain animal lying at the door for your own atonement and reconciliation with God, end quote. One commentator, Atkinson, which is on your outline sheet there, in his commentary on Genesis, published by Moody Press, says, quote, God has provided for Cain as much as for Abel a propitiation for sin. Abel had taken advantage of it. So also may Cain. A typical sin offering was a bleeding lamb, which Abel had already brought. The essential and substantial sin offering is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, end quote. In other words, Atkinson reads that, quote, sin, end quote, as, quote, sin offering lies at the door, end quote, for Cain as well as for Abel. But then you see that requires quite a different understanding of the last phrase. If you understand it as a sin offering at the door, and unto you shall be his desire, and you shall rule over them. What do you do with that? And that's the problem with that understanding of the verse. What Atkinson does with it is this. Unto you shall be his desires that, quote, his, end quote, refers to Abel, he said. If Cain would come to the Lord in faith and do well, then the relationship between he and his brother would be set right. Abel's desire would be to him. He would gain ascendancy over his brother as the right of the firstborn. Quote, Unto you shall be his desire, Abel's desire, and you shall rule over him. End quote. He would gain ascendancy over his brother as the right of the firstborn. The problem with that is the antecedent of quote, his end quote, seems clearly to be referring back to quote, sin. End quote. 
which lies at the door, and to insert, quote, able, end quote, at that point doesn't really flow with the structure of the verse. So I think the normal interpretation that sin lies at the door, seeking to master and control, but he must rule over it, is the best understanding of the verse. But it is a difficult verse. All right. Also with the death of Abel, you notice God's actions subsequently. In verse 9, the Lord says to Cain, quote, Where is Abel your brother? End quote. It's reminiscent after the sin in the garden where God comes and questions, quote, Where is Abel your brother? End quote. And instead of an evasion or shifting of blame as we had previously, you have an outright denial. He said, quote, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? End quote. And he said, quote, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. End quote. So simply he denies guilt. He says, quote, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? End quote. Then in verse 11, the first curse on a human where the term, quote, curse, end quote, is actually used. In fact, that may be a somewhat artificial distinction between curse and punishment. But here it says, quote, Now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto you its strength. A fugitive and vagabond and wanderer shall you be in the earth, end quote. The serpent had been cursed, the ground had been cursed, and now Cain is cursed. This curse seems to be an extension and intensification of the curse that came to man, or the punishment to man generally, with the difficulty of agricultural pursuits. Instead of having difficulty to get the earth to yield the crops, with Cain the harvest will be nothing. It's going to force him to be sort of a scavenger, to wander around to find what he can to sustain himself. As it says in verse 12, quote, When you till the land, it shall not yield unto you its strength. So a fugitive and a wanderer shall you be all your years. End quote. Okay, any questions on the death of Abel? Let's go on to number two, which is, quote, antediluvian technology, end quote. In other words, pre-flood technology. We also find that in chapter 4, beginning at verse 16, quote, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, in the east of Eden. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. He built a city, end quote. So in verse 17, you have reference to the building of the city. He called the name of it, after his son Enoch. Let's read verses 14 and 15. Quote, Behold, you have driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from your face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer in the earth. It shall come to pass that any one that finds me shall slay me. End quote. And of course, the question is often asked, in connection with that, quote, Who would that possibly be if there was only Adam and Eve, and Abel otherwise living, end quote. Well, I think the natural assumption is that Adam and Eve must have had other children, and that those are not mentioned in Scripture. 
In verse 16, the question is intensified because in 16 and 17, we read, quote, Cain knew his wife, she conceived and bore Enoch, end quote. Where did he get his wife? Well, again, it must have been from other descendants of Adam and Eve. Of course, it doesn't say. If you go over to chapter 5, see verse 3, quote, Adam lived 130 years, begat a son in his own likeness after his own image, called Seth, end quote. We do know that at age 130, Seth was born to Adam and Eve. But, see, we get back to the question of how long of a time span was there between the fall and when Seth was born. It may have been a hundred years, and there may have been a lot of other children. You know, in a hundred years, there could be quite a few generations. You could have five generations in a hundred years. In other words, if Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters, and they in turn intermarried and they had children, you could, in a hundred years, easily have five generations. So the potential for multiplication in 100 years with offspring of one couple is enormous. Now, of course, beyond that, we read that Adam lived, what was it, 800 years. So he lived a total of 930 years. But I think what we're dealing with was this time prior to the birth of Seth. And I think we must assume that there were other children born to Adam and Eve and those children may have in turn produced other children. There may have been several generations between the birth of Seth and what we're talking about here. But in Genesis 9, it says that, quote, If someone takes man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed, end quote. Blood revenge. But there, I think God is ordaining the idea of law and government, in which it's a capital offense, that will be handled judiciously. Prior to that, I think the natural inclination of humankind and all human nature is to get revenge. You do it to me, I'm going to do it back to you. And I think that's what Cain was afraid of. And I think the Lord protected him from that, which is hard to answer because the scripture does not address it. God waited until Genesis 9 to institute capital punishment. Why didn't he do it here? I don't know what the answer to that is. Some have suggested that it wasn't done because he wanted to let the weak and the strong grow together. It's sort of God permitting things to go in the direction of Genesis 6 without any check. But at least in this case, he prevents someone from taking revenge on Cain. Cain was fearful of that, and so the Lord says, quote, Whoever slays Cain... Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold, end quote. That wouldn't involve any distinguishing mark on his face or some kind of physical thing that set him apart from other people. It wouldn't involve that. What kind of a sign that it was the Lord gave, we don't know. Some read it that way. That the Lord gave Cain a sign of some sort so that no one finding him would kill him. In other words, that he wouldn't be killed. His life was going to be preserved. His punishment was that he would be forced to wander. He couldn't cultivate the earth. I think the idea of sevenfold means fullness, the idea of fullness. The Lord will take complete vengeance 
on whomever will slay Cain. I don't think that it would be that somebody slays Cain, seven people are going to be killed. I don't think that's the idea. I think it is that the Lord would take complete vengeance upon someone if he would violate that prohibition. I see our time's already gone. It went quickly. All right, we'll pick up at number two at the beginning of next hour. This ends Dr. Robert Vinoy's Old Testament History, lecture number 14.